0: Well, next week we're going to start a series in the book of Genesis. Um, we'll cover just chapters 1 through 11, the first few verses of chapter 12. That'll take us through to the end of November, and then, believe it or not, already it's Advent and time for Christmas. Um, but before we get stuck into Genesis, we thought it a good idea to ask and hopefully to answer some big questions. Some questions that, if left unanswered, might make it harder to hear what Genesis is saying. So, two Sundays ago, we, po- we posed the question, uh, if God is there, why doesn't he show himself? And I thought Jim did as, as good a job as anybody could in half an hour of answering <laughs> a really difficult question. And last Sunday, oh, sorry, that was two Sundays ago. Last Sunday, of course, was different. Uh, we baptized the ladies, Jemima and Ella and Marie, which was a wonderful celebration. Now we're back to our big questions. And the question today is, can we really take Genesis 1 seriously? Well, can we? Can we believe it? It would be no surprise to you that an atheist like Richard Dawkins thinks not. He says in his book, The Blind Watchmaker, nearly all peoples have developed their own creation myth, and the Genesis story is just the one that happened to have been adopted by one particular tribe of Middle Eastern herders. It has no more special status than the belief of a particular West African tribe that the world was created from the excrement of ants. In other words, according to Dawkins, the Genesis account of creation is just an ancient tribal myth. It's fine as a myth goes. It's just a story, like the story of the stork that delivers babies in the night. It's just a myth. But as truth with a capital T, as objective truth, as true whether you like it or not, whether you believe it or not, whether you want it or not, Dawkins says... It's on the level with ant poo. Now, I'm not surprised that's what Dawkins thinks. I'm not surprised that's what many in North America and Western Europe and here in the UK, other parts of the world as well, but especially here, think. Dismissing God and his word, mocking the church, ridiculing Christians, is just the way this part of the world is at the moment. It's just in the air. And Dawkins and many others are simply following the course of this world. The course of the power of, sorry, the course of this world under the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2. But the problem, friends, is that you and I breathe that very same air. It's not your fault. You can't not breathe it. This is where you live. You can't escape it. That attitude, that dismissive, ridiculing, even hostile attitude to God, to his word, to the church, is inescapable. It's on TV, it's on the radio. It's at school, it's at work, it's wherever you go. It's in the air. And would the prince of the air, the power who directs the passions of this age, not love to sow in your heart the seeds of doubt? Did God really say? Well, did he? Are the words of Genesis 1 the very words of God? Can we really take Genesis 1 seriously? It's not an ivory tower academic question. Eternity, your salvation and mine, hangs on whether God's word is true and can be trusted in every part, in every detail. So I want to be clear up front what my goal is in the next half hour or so. I I just want you to know that the Bible is true in every part. The word of your God is true and trustworthy without exception Even in the details of Genesis 1. I'm not trying to win a debate. I'm not trying to answer every possible objection to Genesis 1. We don't have time for that. My aim is simply to give you confidence in trusting this chapter as true. Confidence that you can take it seriously and conviction that you must. So, with that goal in in mind, I'm going to reply to two of the main accusations usually made against Genesis 1. First accusation. is that Genesis isn't real history. And the second accusation is that modern science proves that the details of Genesis, of the creation account in Genesis, cannot be correct. I'm going to reply that Genesis 1 is real history and that nothing in modern science disproves any detail of the Genesis creation account. So that's where we're going. But before that goes in one ear and out the other, think about what I just said. Genesis is real history. And nothing in science disproves any detail of it. Now the world does not believe what I just said. Some of you may have had your trust in the Bible shaken by some of these accusations. And my goal is to help you put those doubts to rest. Okay, first... Genesis is real history. Well, Dawkins doesn't think so. Not real history. Instead, it's something like the legend of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. It's legend, it's folklore, it's myth. Whatever it is, it isn't actual history. Actual, time- and space-bound real history. We accept much of the rest of the Bible much of the Old Testament even as real history even Dawkins does in fact one of his main weapons in his rage against God is the historical fact that Israel conquered the land of Canaan and drove their enemies out he accepts that as real he accepts the real historicity of other parts of the Old Testament the exodus of the Hebrews from Egypt exodus of the Hebrews from Egypt for example sure real history The wars of King Saul, King David, real people, real places, real dates, real history. The rebuilding of Jerusalem under Nehemiah, real history. But Genesis 1, maybe not real history, maybe not real people, maybe not real places. Not King Henry VIII kind of history, maybe more like King Arthur and Merlin and the Round Table kind of legendary history. Well, friends, I wonder if you noticed. I read an unusually long uh, scripture as our call to worship this morning, Psalm 136. I wonder if you noticed in the psalm that the psalmist thinks Genesis 1 is real history. Uh, I want you to see this for yourself. So turn there if you would. Um, maybe somebody who gets to Psalm 136, just call out the page number so I can let everybody know. Um, I want you to see this and I'm going to scan through it and show you, point something out to you 626 six, two, six. thanks Helen okay I think uh, I hear pages have stopped so just a quick scan we can do this very quickly just watch with me from the top the Lord is good verse 1 he is the God of gods verse 2 the Lord of lords verse 3 Who alone does great wonders, verse 4. Who made the heavens, verse 5. Who spread out the earth upon the waters, verse 6. Who made the great lights, verse 7. The sun to govern the day, verse 8. The moon and stars for the night, verse 9. Who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, verse 10. Brought Israel out of Egypt, verse 11. And on. Who divided the Red Sea, who conquered Pharaoh and his army, who led his people through the wilderness, who subdued the kings of the promised land, who gave Israel its inheritance, a land of its own. Now, go look at verse 9. You'll notice there's no break between verse 9 and 10. In the psalmist's mind, the creation, which has led up to verse 9, which he praises God for in the earlier part of the psalm, is as much real history as the Exodus and all that follows in the rest of the psalm. You notice he flows from one to the other with no footnote to his readers explaining that this part is folklore and this part is real, but he's just including the folklore for poetic effect to make a spiritual point. No, in the psalmist's mind, the creation account, the events of Genesis 1, are real history. And this is just... One example, every time the Old Testament authors refer to the events of creation, they do so as real history. Sure, there are some poetic descriptions of it, like in the book of Job, for example, but even when poetically described, the Old Testament authors always refer to the creation events described in chapter 1 of Genesis as real history. Okay, so what about the New Testament? Well, the Apostle Paul thought that Genesis 1 was real history, real people, real places. We don't have time to flesh this out this afternoon, but the whole of Paul's theological structure depends on Adam being a real man. And not just a real man, but the first man, specially created directly by God himself. All mankind, every person that's ever lived and ever will live, is either in Adam, Romans chapter 5, or in Christ, Paul believed that the events of Creation Week in detail, in specific detail, are real history. And on top of that, Paul claimed that every word, every word of Scripture is God-breathed and without error. Well, was he wrong? If the Genesis creation account isn't real history in every specific detail, then Paul's whole theology falls apart, and we have to take Paul out of our Bibles. Well, what about Jesus? Jesus believed Genesis 1 was real history. In Matthew 19, Jesus links together quotes from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and makes makes that the basis for his teaching on divorce. Now, make sure you hear the implications of that. Jesus believed Genesis 1 was real history, real history. And if Genesis 1 is not real history, specifically with regard to the creation of man and woman, But in its entirety, nevertheless, then Jesus was wrong. And if Jesus was wrong about creation, then what else was he wrong about? But Jesus was not wrong. The creation events, in detail, as described in Genesis 1, are real history. I want to move on to the second point, but to summarize, I just want to make clear the point I'm making. There is a common objection against Genesis 1, that it's not real history. It's intended to be myth, legend, something like that. But none of the Bible authors believed that. None of the Old Testament authors believed that. Every time they refer to the creation event, they do so as real history. I could make other arguments for the historicity of the Bible and of Genesis if I were talking to skeptics, but I'm not. I'm talking to you, to God's people who accept the authority of Scripture. And the point I'm wanting to make is that if we accept the authority of Scripture, we have no option but to believe that Genesis 1, in its detail, is real history. Real history. If it isn't, then Moses was wrong. So we need to tear out the first five books of the Bible. But then we also need to tear out every other part of the Old Testament that believes Moses was right. Because if they believed he was right and he wasn't, then they were wrong and they cannot be trusted either. Likewise, the Gospels must go because Jesus can't be trusted. Acts must go because Luke was wrong. All of Paul's letters must go, as must John's, as must Hebrews, and of course Peter too, because he also believed in the inspiration and infallibility of Scripture. I I think we might be left more or less with the books of Esther and Song of Solomon story of a Jewish girl in exile and a love poem. No, if we believe in the authority of Scripture, that, is the very, that it is the very Word of God, then we must believe that the details of the creation account are real, specific, accurate history. Okay, let's uh, move on to the second point. Second reason to take Genesis 1 seriously, nothing in modern science disproves the details of, of the Genesis creation account. Now, of course, I I can't possibly address every accusation that science does disprove the details of Genesis 1. We don't have time for that, and I don't have the knowledge for that. Um, But instead, what I've done is chosen two issues that are very often raised as evidence, proof, apparently, that Genesis cannot be correct. First, the matter of animal death, and second, the age of the earth. So, uh, critics of the Bible and of the creation account in particular, point out that the fossil record clearly shows that animal death occurred long before human death. They say that the Bible teaches there was no death before the fall, before Adam and Eve sinned, and death entered the world as a penalty of sin. But that's only after the creation of man, and the fossil record shows animal death for millions of years before that. Do you you see the problem? Genesis is wrong, apparently, wrong on the details. It's not an accurate history. That's the accusation. So let's address it. Well, very simply, where does the Bible say that there was no animal death before the creation of man? Genesis doesn't say that. Human death death only comes after the creation of humans, obviously, and after the fall in Genesis 3. But Genesis says nothing about animal death. What it does say is that God created an entire functioning ecosystem, and it was very good. Psalm 104 describes, in fact, how God rejoices in his creation. And the same psalm says, The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God, and he gives it to them. God made the world very good, and that state of very goodness included animal death and predation. That the earth was very good does not mean there was no animal death or no plant death. It means it was very good with respect to the purpose for which God created it. Now some people infer from Romans chapter 5 that there could not have been animal death prior to the sin of Adam. They understand Paul to be saying that there was no death of any kind prior to the fall. But Paul simply doesn't say that. And the context of Romans 5 makes it very, very, very unlikely that he was thinking of animal death. He's talking about human death, human life, and human salvation. Animal death before the fall just doesn't feature in Romans 5. There is nothing, there is just nothing in the Bible that says animal death is a result of the fall. God created a functioning ecosystem which included animal death and predation, Birds eating insects, lions eating deer, sharks eating seals, dinosaurs eating Big Macs or whatever dinosaurs ate. And God looked at it all, and he called it all very good, and he rejoiced in it. And a fossil record showing animal death for millions of years before the appearance of humans simply poses no challenge whatsoever to the Genesis account of creation. Okay, I said earlier my goal is to give you confidence that the Bible specifically the creation account, is true in every detail. I started by talking about the historicity of the Bible and that the Bible writers all believe Genesis 1 to be real history, not myth, not legend, not folklore, real history. And if you accept the inerrancy and authority of Scripture, you must accept the creation account as true in every detail. Second, I said there is nothing in modern science that proves any single detail of the creation account to be wrong. I've given one example of that, the issue of animal death in the fossil record, and now we're going to deal with the second issue, the so-called problem of the age of the earth, the issue of the age of the earth. So what is the issue? Well, Genesis 1 describes a seven-day week, six days of creation, one day of rest. Now, many folks will say those seven days are days just like we understand the word day now. In other words, 24, uh, sorry, six days of 24 hours each. Literal 24 hour days, like we know today. Now, if you take that view and you follow on through biblical history and add up all the days and the years and the genealogies and etc., then allowing for some uncertainty, because there is a fair bit of uncertainty in how you add those things up, that would mean that the Earth is somewhere between about 6,000 and about 20,000 years old. And that, that is called the young Earth view of creation. The problem with this view is it doesn't seem to square with current scientific evidence that the Earth is much older than that. Now, depending on which evidence you find most persuasive, the current consensus is that the Earth is somewhere between about 4 billion and about 14 billion years old. Somewhere in that range. Now, whether it's 4 billion or 14 billion really doesn't matter. The point is, it's a lot more than 20,000. The result is that the scientific community, or at least most of it, says, You Christians are anti science. You just won't accept evidence. You're backward fundamentalists. Now, if the Bible were clear that that the days of creation are and must be literal 24 hours a day, 24-hour days, then I would say, no matter what conclusion science has reached or thinks it has reached, and, and I say thinks of not to be disparaging, but just to recognize the fact that conclusions are open to revision as new evidence comes to light. But if that were clear from the Bible, I would gladly hold to that view in the face of whatever evidence science thinks it had. And I would accept whatever insults came my way. But the Bible is not clear that God created things in six 24-hour periods. It it might mean that. It might. We can't rule it out. Personally, I don't think so. But if you're persuaded by that and you've got good arguments for it, then fine. Let me tell you what I think it means. I take the view, together with modern scholars like John Sailhammer and Vern Poitras and many others throughout the history of the Church, and also in Jewish rabbinical scholarship, that Genesis tells of, one, of two, not one, Two great acts of God. The first great act of God is the creation of the entire universe, including our planets, the animals, the sun, the moon, the stars, everything. That's what happens in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then from verse 2 onwards, Moses tells of God's preparation of a specific land for the man and the woman he was still to create. And that land was the same land later promised to Abraham and his descendants. In other words, there is a gap between Genesis 1 verse 1 and Genesis 1 verse 2. A gap of we don't know how long. The Bible just doesn't tell us. Now think through this carefully. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Full stop. When? In the beginning. Well... When was the initial act of creation? How long ago was that? Importantly, the Hebrew word there translated beginning does not mean a single instant of time. It means a period of time that precedes, that comes before something else. It's a time before time. From verse 2 onwards, we're then told about how God prepared a specific place, not the heavens and the earth, not the whole created universe, a specific land, a specific place for the man and the woman, for Adam and Eve to live. You see the implications of this. God created the entire universe at some time in the beginning, in some time before time. If science is able to determine that the universe came into existence 4 billion or 14 billion or 400 billion years ago, that poses no challenge at all to the accuracy of the creation account in Genesis 1. That was in the time before time, in the beginning. The second great act of God in Genesis 1 is the creation of man, that is, male and female, mankind. God first created the whole universe out of nothing in the beginning. Then, sometime later, after in the beginning, God took six days to prepare a land, a dwelling place, perfectly suited to man. And then, when the land was ready, He created man to dwell in the land which he had lovingly prepared for him. Now if those six days, if those six days were literal 24 hour periods, that's fine. That poses no challenge to the scientific consensus that the earth is however many billions of years old. Personally I think they probably were 24 hour days. I think that's the natural reading of the text but I can't say for sure. If if those six days are meant in a extended period of time since, it doesn't matter. Again, the evidence that the Earth or the universe is however many billions of years old doesn't challenge that one way or the other. The point is simply that a careful, well-supported, historically attested interpretation of Genesis 1 with respect to the age of the Earth has no conflict with the findings of modern cosmology. If science is ever able to definitively say the earth is 15 billion years old, or whatever, that's fine. Whatever age the earth turns out to be, it doesn't undermine the Genesis account of creation in the slightest. God created the universe in however long he did it, in the beginning. And then in a subsequent, in a later six-day period, he prepared a land for the special creation of man. Now there's obviously much more that could be said about this view, A lot of detailed reasons why it makes sense, and I'm convinced makes the best sense of Scripture. It solves all sorts of problems, of perceived problems. But my goal this afternoon isn't to solve every problem. If this really is an area of of interest to you or of concern to you, then do come and talk to me afterwards. And I will point you to some, some good readings, some good books that can flesh out the details better than I can. My goal for this afternoon was just to answer the question... Can we really take Genesis 1 seriously? And in answering that question, I've replied to two common accusations. First, Genesis is real history. All the Bible Bible writers believed it. Jesus believed it. And second, to the accusation that modern science proves that Genesis cannot be accurate. It's simply untrue. There is no... Reason there is nothing in modern science that disproves any detail of Genesis. So the answer is yes, we can and we must take Genesis 1 seriously. Friends, we can with confidence say that ultimately the findings of science will always reconcile the scripture because the same God who created the heavens and the earth is the God who inspired the Bible. There cannot be any final conflict between the Bible and science once all the facts are in, and are properly and honestly interpreted. And I don't want any of you, and more importantly, the Lord doesn't want any of you to labor under doubt. I know I haven't answered every question you might have, but I hope this is helpful in reassuring you that there are good answers. Whatever your question may be, there are good answers. There are good ways to understand how the findings of science, how the accusations of history reconcile with Genesis. I want you to be reassured that the Bible's telling of the creation account is true, reliable, accurate, real history. That said, uh, I know I'm not clever enough to answer every question you might have. um, And your faith and your salvation don't depend, thank God, on my ability to answer your questions or on anybody else's ability to answer every possible question. Your salvation depends on the faithfulness and the grace of the God of Genesis chapter 1. On his faithfulness because we know his words are true, every one of them, in detail. And on his grace because our hearts and minds were closed to truth, dead to truth, until he opened them to see. He is the God who created the whole universe and spoke light into darkness. He is the God who inspired by his Holy Spirit the writing of Scripture such that it is true and accurate and without error, he is the God who shone in your hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in Christ. His word is true, trustworthy, accurate, and reliable. I'm going to, um, in a moment, uh, see if, if anybody wants to ask questions or make comments. We'll do that for a few minutes. I'll do my best to to answer. If I can't, then I will go away and think about it and come back to you. But um, I'm just going to pray briefly and then we'll do that. Your word, O Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. Your faithfulness continues through all generations. Father, you are a God who cannot lie. And so we can have absolute confidence in your word, in every detail. Father, would you be at work in our hearts, in our minds, not just to persuade us of this fact, but to put to rest any genuine, any honest questions, to help us find the resources to answer those questions, and to help us be able to pass those answers on to others for whom those are real questions, for whom those issues might stand in the way of them giving your word a serious hearing. Father, we look forward to digging into Genesis properly from next week. Would you be with us as we do so? Would you open the eyes of our hearts to see you and your word, to see the wonder of who you are, the wonder and the beauty of your plan of salvation, right from the very, very beginning, Right from the time before time, you were at work in our salvation, to your glory. Amen.